Hiya, pal. Got an idea. All right, mate, go on. I think we need to evolve the podcast. All right, what you got in mind? Well, why don't we just start recording all the chats we have when we're talking about leadership? Okay, what are we going to call it? Sense makers. Sense makers. Love it. And have we got a backer? Of course we have. Tsunami Sport. Quality. When are we starting? Now, get this end round and I'll put kettle on. Top man, I'll be round in five. Kendall Zola is an author, global presenter, trainer, coach, keynote speaker, and teacher. He specializes in communicative intelligence, leadership, adult learning theory, and inquiry models of learning. Kendall's research includes the impacts of adaptive leadership and communicative intelligence on organizational change and nonverbal patterns of teachers and the influences on student learning. Kendall has presented across the US, Canada, Europe, Asia, Malaysia, and Thailand to international schools, public and private schools, universities, corporations, and agencies. His book, The Presenter's Atlas, offers a focused and concise view into the skills for these seven essential abilities of communicative intelligence. And he's also co-authored a really top-notch book, the choreography of presenting. So, Kendall, welcome and tell us more about this communicative intelligence. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. It's good to see you too. Oh, it all started, no, it, it did. It all started from my from my dissertation research. And I ended up I ended up looking at teachers from five countries. I looked at the, the, the Czech Republic, Australia, um, Japan, uh, the Netherlands, and the United States. And uh, <clears throat> I did that through a, a video, through a video analysis. And I just looked at, you know, what is it teachers do in the classroom that influences students, influences students learning. And then from that emerged kind of an expansion, I guess, from Daniel Goleman's work in social intelligence and emotional intelligence. And I just kind of wove into that idea that I think there's another intelligence there. I think it's communicative from the idea of, how we think, how we communicate, how we build relationships, you know, all that stuff. So that's really kind of where it started way back around 1999, 2000, maybe. Fantastic. T tell us more about these seven essential abilities of communicative intelligence. Well, you know, we, uh, we was uh, Claudette Landry, who I co-authored the book with, and uh, we decided to write the book and we were thinking about, well, how, you know, how do we take this knowledge we have on nonverbal patterns of communication and, I don't know, put them in, put them in a way that would be, uh, I guess, palatable, reasonable, something that people could wrap their heads around. So we took a big pile of skills, about 45 or 50 of them, and uh, arranged them in little smaller piles and we came up with seven abilities around the idea of, of credibility, of rapport, of uh, balancing the task and the process, uh, how you listen to someone and how you acknowledge, <laughs> how you acknowledge someone when you're speaking. And then uh, one of the favorite chapters is recovery with grace. Uh, what do you do when things go wrong? <laughs> That's chapter seven. Uh, 
that's a that's a that's a pretty popular one yeah i think i think i got all seven <laughs> uh, yeah i did i did good effort well, I missed, I think I missed rapport. Yeah. No, you got that in. I've got it right. I did, now. okay. The power uh, oh, how, to read, how to read the group too. Yeah, how to read the group. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. The, um, the, the, it's an interesting topic presented, isn't it? And we know that um, as teachers, it, it, it's something that we're often asked to do with, um, with a huge sort of continuum of confidence, depending on the individual and, and their sort of self-confidence in context, but also maybe around and their confidence in, in the information that they're sharing, their relationships with the people in the room. Where, where do we start, Kendall? I don't usually ask guests that question, but where do we start with presenting? What, what's the first step to start getting this right? Uh, that's, that's an interesting question that I, I would have answered differently a year ago. Okay. And, uh, and now I'm going to answer it in a new way. And I have been working with uh, a colleague in Australia with this huge global organization that we've been working with. And it's around the idea of storytelling and storytelling for leadership. And of course, in that is a bunch of uh, communication skills. And one of the things that came up is the idea of structure. How do you, you know, how do you even prepare? As you said, Lewis, how do you even prepare? What's the first thing I should be doing? And uh, anyway, we ended up developing a structure piece uh, that we thought was pretty straightforward. It's kind of a, a double-sided piece of uh, paper, but the essence of it is that the beginning really starts around the audience. It starts around the idea of how long you're gonna talk, uh, who's coming, uh, how do they feel about being there? And that's at two levels. Uh, one level is how do they feel about the topic, right? Is it going to, you know, are they there because they want to be or are they there because they're told to be? And is it going to be interesting for them? Do they, do they have an interest in it? And then the other piece of the audience is what's their mood like? Uh, what's recently happened in their organization or their school that might put uh, a load on their shoulders or, uh, you know, maybe something that's more in a happy state, but it's checking that mood at the same time. And then there's always the purpose. There's always the big why. And if you don't have clarity of the big why, uh, it's just not going to go anywhere. So it's really taking some time to think about that idea of your big, your big why that you're really talking to people with what it is that you're going to talk about. And then there's a couple of um, internal states for yourself. And I think one of them that any of us need to do when we're presenting is we need to ask ourselves um, who we need to be during that session. Uh, do we need to be uh, grateful, vulnerable, curious, uh, humble, bold, persistent, whatever? You know, you set your internal sort of mind frame or mindset. And then the second question to ask yourself is, how do you need to be, uh, you know, in your actions and in your behaviors? Are you going to be uh, quick or slow or excited, uh, intellectual, um, relationship driven, that sort of idea? I think those are huge. And, and that's just really, that's just intel before you even 
get out there. Um, and then you get into the content. You know, you got to do your scope and sequence and figure out all of that stuff. What's the essential knowledge? What's nice to know in the time frame that you have? And then the other thing that, that I think is quite fascinating is figuring out, <clears throat> figuring out sort of what I call containers. It's something that Bob Garmson and I came up with 20 plus years ago, uh, but it's, it's setting up uh, the, the container or frame of your talk. For instance, do you want to uh, deliver a, a talk or a presentation that is uh, linear in fashion, almost time sequenced? Or do you want to frame it around uh, a question answer? Well, you have a provocative question to start out. You develop the answer. Um, three ideas. What are the three major ideas? And you can pull them apart underneath. There's a lot more I won't go into them, but there's that piece. Uh, and there's a couple of others, but I'll, I'll pause for a moment. That, that was kind of a lot of information there. <laughs> it is, um, and, and probably quite rightly, because we, we judge ourselves, don't we, as we present. We, we're constantly in a position of thinking, um, to go back to your, who, who should I be and how should I be? Am I doing the right thing? Am I the right person to be here? Am I sharing the right information? And those sort of um, checks and measures that you started to outline give people that opportunity to, to make sure that they've covered their bases and they've got a purpose for what they're trying to share. I, I want to go back to, to what you mentioned about the audience. We've all been in a position before where we've chosen to attend a, pre a presentation. And usually <laughs> when you choose to be there, um, your body language shows that and, and you're, you're quite intrigued to what's going to happen and, and you're looking forward to it. We've all also unfortunately been in a position where we, we haven't had that choice um, and, and sometimes that's been positive and, and we've, we've had a fantastic experience because of it. At other times that hasn't been so. Um, as a presenter, when you're in that situation, you are a keynote or you are sat in front of a whole school, a year group, whatever it is, and, and they are pretty much forced to listen to you. What, 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 what things do you need to bear in mind um, to make sure you are connecting with your audience? <laughs> well, I think, there's, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, one of them is I, I do spend, in preparation, I do spend a lot of time around the idea of what do I want people to think, do, say, and feel, like within the first five minutes. And... That frame, I, I do it almost as a quadrant where I have, uh, you know, a, a quadrant and I'll have think, do, say, and feel. And I'll, I'll literally write, write down some things I want them to think and do. And generally, the say is easy. The say is, and if you've seen me before, you know that within about 90 seconds, you are talking to the person next to you. Um, I think... I think in any presentation, there's a couple of things to think about. And that is that number one, we know that learning is a social event. We know that how we engage with the person next to us is going to influence how we participate. And that it has to be social. So I'll always have people talking to each other right away. And there's a whole bunch of things that influences later. It also sets the tone for the day. Um, but it's that, it's that think, do, say, feel. It's what I call an impact statement that I think 
um, is really important. Like you say, whether the audience wants to be there or doesn't want to be there and you set up whatever your statement's going to be. And so I end up working with people when I'm doing the work around presentation training. We'll spend time on that opening impact statement. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I'd like to come back a moment, Kendall, to those internal states yeah. that you talked about. And if I can just paraphrase those, who do we need to be? And you use the terms grateful, humble, curious. Yeah. And then the second one is how do you need to be? You looked at quick, slow relationship driven etc now we get we hear a lot at the moment about being authentic yes so are, are you saying there you're just going up and be yourself or are you trying to be someone else i'm i just need some clarity on that oh, um, yeah. so it looks as if you can be different things to different people depending on your audience or do you just be yourself absolutely um <laughs> yes and <laughs> <laughs> Oh, authenticity is such a wonderful creature. Um, we have authenticity that goes on in our heads, and then we have the perception of authenticity from the audience. Yes. And uh, so let me mention the audience first. <clears throat> so one way that people perceive authenticity, a, a lot of it is unconscious or subconscious, but it's the congruence between the nonverbal and the verbal. And when, when they're congruent, then there's a sense of authenticity. Uh, when they're incongruent, then, then that's when you're off. Incongruence would be something where um, your, your gestures may not match what you're saying. So this will look crazy on camera, but it, instead of, uh, well, you, you say it's, it's really a big group and you, you put your hands together. You know, it's really a big group. Uh, well, that doesn't make any sense, right? But you'll see people do that when they're maybe too stuck in their script or thinking about something else. So there's that congruence element. And then the other piece, uh, and this will get crazy also, is breathing, your own breathing. And uh, briefly, we... we we breathe many different ways. One way is through our abdomen. The other way is up through our, our sort of chest region. And we shift all the time with that breathing pattern. And um, generally, when we're breathing low and uh, sort of calmly, uh, that adds to that idea of authenticity and credibility, uh, that you're worth being listened to, as opposed to, if I may, Lifting, lifting up your breathing here and you're talking up out of your chest. It's just not as authentic sounding when you're doing that. Uh, so it's that idea also. And Alan, you asked about being yourself. That's mm. a crazy question. Uh, <clears throat> I think I'll answer it this way. I think that we have a choice to be uh, deliberate and intentional with our work. It's just like teaching in the classroom. All of us know that teaching is not by luck. Uh, learning doesn't just happen. It's, there's so much research about, about the structure of the lesson, about formative assessments, about inquiry and everything else you can think about. Teaching is extremely deliberate and intentional. I am okay with deliberate and intentional behavior being authentic. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
I think it's I think it's perfectly fine to have those work together. So my belief is that if we're running a, a workshop, given a presentation, I think it's imperative on us because time is short, people's time is precious, it has to be worthwhile. So it needs to be deliberate and intentional. True so, to yourself. So does that authenticity, I imagine, then start the rapport? That I know is one part of your book and, and a key part of it. It, 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 it. Is it a chicken and an egg situation? Does the rapport become stronger because of the authenticity or is it the authenticity that's the needed to actually begin to, to build the rapport? Well, I think uh, rapport is ongoing. Uh, we seek it immediately and then constantly check to see if it's there. I... <clears throat> I try to get rapport before I ever start, like before the talk even starts or the presentation starts or the workshop. And that's along the idea that, again, many of us already do this. It's walking around the room, walking up to people saying hi, checking, checking questions, seeing how they're doing, moving from table to table, throwing in some humor, some wit, getting them to know you. So rapport is built before you even start. And then once you're up, then um, it gets pretty complicated if we go down the road of rapport. But there's <clears throat> with a group, there's group rapport versus individual rapport. And so I wrote a lot about the idea of group rapport. How do you ensure that the group is with you, that you have a relationship with them, that you have uh, permission to push them intellectually maybe even push them emotionally, depending on the topic that you're delivering. So there are uh, some group dynamic patterns related to rapport that are, that are important also. And the, that idea of rapport and having those group dynamics versus individual dynamics, I know they're interesting from a, a teaching point of view. Again, when, when teachers are asked to present whatever the context, there's a mixed um, response to that some people are quite nervous some people really enjoy it but regardless of whether they're nervous or whether they enjoy it they'll be into relationships within the group that they're presenting to that may be quite difficult and there'll be relationships with the group that they're presenting to that, that may be quite positive so you're not necessarily just presenting to a hostile audience all the time or I hope not and you're not necessarily just presenting to, to your peers all the time how and uh, we're talking a little bit about the presenter here and i know that one of your key aspects is thinking more about the audience but but thinking about the presenter just for the moment how does the presenter begin to deal with that to deal with that idea of knowing that there are people out in that audience that will be very much cheerleading what they're saying and then the people in that audience that very much want to knock down what they're saying and say you know what that's rubbish and i'm going to write down everything you're saying that i disagree with because there'll be a mix of those two extremes right Oh my goodness. Yes, there is a mix. And there's always a mix. Yeah. And the mix can also emerge. Everybody could be fine one moment and then you say something or somebody says something in the room and, and then it falls apart and you get a couple people that want to lop you off at the knees. So um, <clears throat> the first thing that comes to mind when I think about it is that <clears throat> they're going to have, they, the audience is going to have a relationship with me and a relationship with each other. So if there is um, if there is some hostility, or if there are a few people in the audience that I perceive are um, 
not completely on board with maybe what it is that, that I might be presenting, um, it is going to be a turn to your neighbor. And what for you in the last 10 minutes has been interesting or not interesting, or what do you agree with? What do you disagree with? The reason I have people talk to each other is because they will always engage with each other, even if they don't engage with me. Like if I'm up there talking and they're not listening, or they're looking at email, or they're playing on their computer, as soon as I see that, I just say, turn to your neighbor. <laughs> because they're not going to be rude to the person they're sitting next to. So that's one element. The other element that you hit with this idea of what do you do when there are people that have their varying views, whether you have a split audience or whatever it is. <clears throat> I believe that along with that intention, that when you open your session, not only do you have an impact statement of a think, do, say, feel, the other thing that you do is you create a space create a space for them that is safe to uh, think, safe to reveal their own ignorance about a topic, safe enough to be naive about something, and a place that allows them to develop. It is deeply embedded in the work that Tony Isalahara and I did last year in the book called Heart Space. And I will always have a period of time that may be five or 10 minutes. It might be even longer than that, depending on the length of the session, where all I'm doing is creating that space so that if there is someone who's unhappy there, they're going to have that space to say it. And then, and then we're going to build on it. We're going to build on it. Um, I, I really think that's essential to set the intentionality of what do I want people to feel? I didn't ask, what are they feeling? That is part of the intel. But once I start, it's, I think it's on me to create the environment that says, this is how I want you to feel, uh, joyful, um, socially connected, uh, curious, you know, whatever it is, I'll, I'll design that in the heart space at the beginning. I find it very interesting, kind of how you deal with those that are not engaged. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> just recapping there is, is, is that process of getting them to, to speak to the person next to them because they're not rude to them. I, I love that concept. And, and I think that's a lot of teachers, and I might be making a presumption here, but a lot of teachers are fine with presenting to children because they do mm -hmm. that all the time. That's their, that's their safe space. But when, and I've encountered this myself. Mm -hmm. When they're then asked to present to their peers who know them, mm -hmm. uh, well, some know them, some don't know them so well, they have different perceptions about what your qualities are or where your strengths are, they find that much more challenging than presenting to a completely Huge. new audience. Huge. Now, how, would you, how would you advise those people that suffer with maybe that bit of confidence to be able to present to people they don't want to present to. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like the little added part at the end. 
Uh, but everybody likes it. You know, it's a skill, isn't it? It's, it's certainly it's it taught, not caught. It is. Um, you know, uh, as I think about it, um, you have to have a, a passion and interest for what you're going to be talking about. If you don't have that, it's going to be really hard for that person, I think. So they, there's got to be an interest, a passion that they have for it with some degree of, uh, it, they can have expertise. It's not essential to have expertise to present because there's lots and lots of things you can do to set that tone for the day and to acknowledge to the group that you don't know something in, in a certain way and that you do know other things. I'm all good with that. Uh, the idea of confidence, if I'm coaching someone and watching them present is getting them to breathe. I'm gonna go back to breathing. You know, the book, The Choreography of Presenting, it has, I don't know, 45 or 50 patterns in it, patterns that humans use in communication It influences other humans. And the one pattern that is the most significant because it changes the physiology of yourself and others is breathing. And people need to, they need to uh, be in control of their breathing when they're presenting at times so that they can be present when they're uncertain or their confidence is waning. The other piece, uh, and I'm gonna go back to the turn to your neighbor, get people talking to each other. That's one way to build up your confidence because they're no longer looking at you. You can relax <laughs> for a minute. <laughs> yeah, they're they're so talking true. to each other for a couple of minutes. So you can go, you know, and gather yourself back up and get ready. Um, I have lots of props. So I'll always have a couple of easels in the room. There'll always be something written on it. So I can always turn to an easel. And if I'm uncomfortable or uncertain about something, everybody's looking at me and I'm thinking, ooh, how am I going to get out of this? Well, I walk over to an easel and I write something down. And when I do that, I'm not looking at the group. I'm taking care of myself. And then when I turn to the group and I ask them about what's on the easel, it's called third point. I turn with my hand and eyes and say, as you look and no longer look at them. Now they're looking at the easel and that tends to keep my nerves down. It tends to keep my confidence up yeah. because now they're looking at that. And I'm not under that visual pressure of 40, 50 or hundred people looking at me. And, um, and I know that from, from, from watching your presentations myself in real life, I've had, that pleasure, Kendall, and it is an exhilarating experience. And you, you talked about that for, sort of third point um, as a, I think you used a corridor example of trying to have a difficult, but maybe you want to keep it quite short conversation with somebody. Can you explain that one for us? It's maybe just a little bit more detailed than, than that um, introduction you just given us. I think so. That might've been the time that um, I sort of uh, set up a little humor session with it, with a volunteer uh, yes, they, yeah. So, you, you know, a colleague and myself, maybe we just finished a meeting earlier and we didn't have time to debrief it. And I need to, you know, we need to catch up and do it. And so we, we see each other in the hallway. No one's around. Uh, it's just us. And uh, it's my chance to offer some feedback. Well, you've got to have a third point you've got to have a, a piece of paper or something because if you walk up to someone and say, uh, hey, Lewis, I'd really like to talk to you about what we did yesterday in the meeting. And here I am staring at you, catching you off guard. 
and chances are you're going to hold your breath and not be that <laughs> ready to respond. But if I walk up and I say, hey, Lewis, remember the meeting that we had yesterday? And now I'm looking, as you can see, at that piece of paper. Well, you'll look immediately at the paper and you'll go, yeah, I remember that. Because you can talk to a piece of paper way easier than me. And so that third point gives us that permission to move into that area of difficult conversations that we can often have with, with students, with parents, with colleagues, whatever it is. Third point is our gift. We need a place to redirect the eyes, to redirect the energy, and most importantly, to separate the relationship from the topic. Because I don't want our relationship to be harmed. We're going to talk about the topic and that keeps it separate. So could, could you use that sort of same principle? I'm, I'm considering a situation in a presentation where there's clearly a difference of opinion between presenter and audience. Um, would you use that principle in, in that context of then pointing back to the topic and using the easel or using your screen or using some information to try and go back to that point or to, to give the idea that actually this debate is okay and it's not a debate between two people, it's the debate around the topic? Absolutely. Absolutely. If it's going to be a hot topic, <clears throat> well, you're in, in, in a, we're, we're down a corridor that can go two branches here. Uh, so we have planned and unplanned. Mm. Let's, let's do that. So if uh, let's do unplanned first, cause that's a little quicker. So you're running. Alan, Alan's sweating already, aren't you? Unplanned presenting, Alan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not for me. <laughs> You're running along a session and something comes up that puts you into that little tension area mm -hmm. where, oh my God, they said something or that question or whatever it is. Then one way, there are many, one way is to take that and write it down on an easel and have it in the room, whatever that thing is. You would then perhaps paraphrase that person. You might ask the question, does this capture what you have just said? And, and they'll look at it and they'll say, you know, yes or no. If they say no, what would you like me to add? And, oh, okay. And you add that. And does this capture? And eventually they say yes. And then once they say yes, you pivot by saying something like, and where we are right now can address that. And here's what we have found, you know, and then you move on with your, with your content. <clears throat> The reason that we want to write it visually up there is that that person that may have said something, they now feel listened to and understood because their idea is present in front of them. I didn't disagree or disagree. I didn't agree or disagree with it. I acknowledged it. Mm -hmm. It's present. Uh, they're probably not going to bring it up again because it's in the room. <laughs> so they'll be quiet. Yeah. <clears throat> then on the plan part, um, I'm going to get all philosophical for a moment, if I may, on it. So in the classroom, we as teachers have full permission by hierarchy and structure to make children what we call uncomfortable enough to learn. Vygotsky's moment, you know, that distance between almost knowing and knowing. Mm -hmm. It's what we do in teaching. We move students through cognitive discourse. We move them through uh, this sort of cognitive disequilibrium so that they'll learn. And we do it. 
for some reason, when we stand up in front of adults, we set that whole concept aside <laughs> in some <laughs> cases. And yet we need cognitive tension when we're in these, in these moments. Because if we're not moving cognitively into deeper levels, it's probably a waste of time. So we need to make adults uncomfortable enough to learn. And so that tension's necessary. Third point does it. Talking in small groups does it. We all know that the safest pattern is pairs. Because any of us will say to one person, oh my gosh, I don't know, or I don't understand. But we're probably not going to raise our hand in a room with 100 people and say, I don't know. So the safest is pairs. The next safest, once you develop that safety net, that vulnerability with a group, you move them into triads or quads. And then you move them into whole table, and then you can go whole group. And we've all seen the momentum that goes back and forth between that and the classroom. We need to do that same thing with adults also. So um, I don't know if that completely answered your question, Alan, but. I think it does because I think it links, it starts to link back, doesn't it, to this idea of you're not, you're not trying to present to passengers. No. You're not trying to present to people that are just sort of just there in body, but maybe not present in mind. You're actually trying your best to find different ways to engage the people in your audience and embrace those um, differences of opinion and embrace those ideas that they may have. And like you said, to get those ideas out and in the room so those people feel that they have had the opportunity to share. And then I suppose what you do with that then as a presenter in terms of follow-up is very much up to you and, and the context that you're in. No, it definitely is. I think, I think the point you just brought up around that idea that uh, we, <clears throat> we need to be comfortable making other people cognitively uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, emotionally safe, cognitively challenged. Because if we're not, then your session should have been a memo. <laughs> yeah. You, know, yeah. I mean, you don't bring people together to just transmit information you bring people together to to unpack to critique to analyze to build to build knowledge you know things like that i mean my goodness yeah yeah you're so right there that, and that's the difference between the collaboration and cooperation and oh. looking at those those definitions when you have meetings are your meetings collaborative and problem solving? Are they just agenda items that you're working through? Yep. It's a very interesting concept. I'd like to come back a step and, yeah. and look at individuals. And, and I work a lot with, with students who are preparing to do presentations. Mm. And they'll say things like, what do I do with my hands? <laughs> do I, it's, it's a big worry to some people. What do you do it with is, your hands? It is. What, do I walk around and talk or do I stand in one position? Yeah. Yeah. And then you talk about having props. Like, how can we really help people who are, are beginners who struggle with what, knowing what to do with their gestures? Yes. Give us some tips, Kendall. Yes. Oh my gosh, you're bringing a smile to my face, Alan, because one <laughs> of the things that, uh, that I get to do at a bunch of international schools, and in fact, I just did it in Berlin, and I also did it in, uh, in Hungary, in Budapest. Uh, I do sessions with students. Brilliant. 
and it's it's wonderful. Uh, usually fifth graders, and then uh, the eleventh and twelfth graders. Uh, uh, TOK comes up a lot. Uh, yeah. They used to do the presentation, so fifth graders, uh, I think ninth graders, and so on. So I will often do an, a one hour to an hour and a half session with the students on how are they going to present their their session, and so. Um, the idea of standing stills, one of them, that idea of stance. And, you know, I get them to stand up and I get them to say something that they would open up with. And then that idea of, of the gesture, right? And uh, so I'm going to drop my camera a tiny bit with this. And uh, the gestures are, are lots, of, <laughs> lots of things. One of the things we know is that if we want students to, uh, to be credible. If we want them to be this idea of credibility, which is the group's perception that you're worth listening to, then there's a gesture that increases that assignment of credibility to you. And uh, it's when your lower arm, which I can't completely do here on camera, when your lower arm is parallel to the ground, this is a more credible gesture than, uh, than that is, or than that is. So when I have the students do that. Just put your hand out here, talk this way. And I have them do it over and over. So you get them used to the idea of moving their hands as if they're the phrase that matches their sentence. Because our gestures are gestural phrases just as we speak. So that's one thing I get them to do. The second thing I get them to do is uh, to understand that you can have a gesture of relationship like this, that, that is a gesture with space between the fingers and a curved palm that's up. This is uh, an, an invitational gesture, sort of ask, you know, what are you thinking about? And then if you want to make a point or you want to assert something or you want to be definitive, then you... Uh, take away the space, you take away the curve, and uh, you can turn it up a little bit and say, uh, this is really important. <laughs> so you have a relationship gesture and a content gesture and, and everything in between. So 90 degrees, uh, open and authoritative. And then the other piece is what's called a frozen gesture. And what that is, is that when you speak, you often move your hands. <clears throat> but then when you have to inhale, you're pausing. So what do you do with your hands when you pause? And how do you indicate to people you have something else to say? So the idea is that when you are speaking, as soon as you get to a pause, you hold your hand still. And that lets people know you have something else to say. Watch what I do right now without using a gesture and it's gonna look a little weird. <laughs> so if when you're talking to someone and you don't use your gestures at all, and you just simply pause, <laughs> no one knows what's going on, right? <laughs> however, however, when you bring it up and you get ready to say something, See, you anticipated I was going to say something. <laughs> the gesture's there. That's what they do. So that's a lot of fun to do with the students. 
so I do the gestures, I do the stance of the body, I teach them voice, to use a voice that's a credible voice or the voice that's approachable. And I also teach them third point and a couple of other things, visual paragraph. Yeah, it's, it's a good time. They're, they're a blast to work with, just a blast. Kendall, how far have you gone in sort of un unwinding why that is? Obviously, as, as humans, we've interacted for, for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. Why did I expect you to say something then when your body language suggested you would? Why did I find it so weird to watch you talking and pause without using any body language? Where, where does that come from? Have you dived into that? Well, there's all kinds of theories about it. Um, one of them around the development of language is that gestures were first. Okay. And then yeah. came sort of audible noises and then eventually words. So the yeah. roots of it are within gesture. So it's already a natural part of language. All languages, all cultures gesture. How they gesture is unique uh, for each culture, both in the type, of, the type of gestures and also the frequency of gestures and the size of them. Some, some uh, cultures have large gestures, others mm. have small gestures, frequent and infrequent and lots of things like that. So the origin from at least what I was reading about is that gestures were first, then auditory sounds, and then eventually words. So it's already naturally part of language. It's wired into, it's wired into our brains. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's, it's wired in, and that would make sense that if there's a referent and there's, there's a word you're trying to say and somebody doesn't know the word you're trying to say, let's imagine you're learning a new language, you would make a gesture of pointing to the object that you're talking about, wouldn't you? And, and you'd say, well, that's a ball um, or a ballon or whatever that might be in French, Spanish, whatever other language you're looking at. So from that referent, we're sort of making an assumption that that person's talking about that one thing. And then the theory is that maybe that sort of evolved into depending on the culture you're in, understanding what those sort of gestures mean and how they determine the referent the person's speaking to about. Yep. And you're, you're, uh, you're going down, also it gets incredibly complicated around it. So there are, there are gestures that are representative of things like a ball or, or pointing, deictic uh, gestures. Then there's also gestures just within language that I'm using right now that have no meaning to the word. They just simply guide your attention. Yeah. Right. And so those are the ones that I'm more interested in and in how we communicate with each other, because uh, those are the ones that make a difference and can connect with a group and build that rapport and build that gravitas and that credibility. So gestures are huge in that. What, what's your views on walking around then, Kendall? Because a lot of people do it out of nerves. People <laughs> yeah, walk, they do. They, they do. They just and they energy, all over the place, yeah. Where they've got all that energy in you. And I'm, I'm guilty of it. As, as an area. Oh, of course. I walk around and get, you're getting out your energy. And then you've got yeah. to think about, well, this situation where you might need a lectern or you're using yeah. a microphone or where's your script. And then you have people who just read from slides. <laughs> what? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I, and, and you get that, but it's, all of it is a comfort blanket, isn't it? it and is. it's how, it how do we get to a point where we can remove that comfort blanket? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So 
here's what is important in relationship to walking around or not walking around. Uh, you know, absolutely. If you want to walk around and talk, go ahead and walk around and talk. <clears throat> what I will say is this. If you want someone to remember what you're saying specifically in that moment, then stand still when you deliver that content. And I'm not saying stand still for 10 minutes. I'm talking about the two or three sentences. So it's that idea that if you're, uh, if you're getting, you know, you're, you're up there, you're, you're, you're saying, you know, something like, uh, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot that we're, we're thinking about here. And I, I know that I'm watching a lot we're thinking about it. And really when it comes down to it, there's really two points. And here's the first. And yeah. then you deliver it standing still. That anchored, that anchored point without movement uh, will, uh, uh, will anchor itself more in the memory of those that you are talking to. If you're moving when you do it, uh, that's just more incoming information for the brain to process. It's processing movement at a subconscious level. It's watching the movement. And sometimes when you watch something, you can't hear as well than when it's standing still. So you, as a presenter or a teacher, you know when you're about to say something important, well, then stand still. <laughs> Just so, so, simple. so simple, but often forgotten though. Yeah. So the, the, the purpose of standing still is essentially to reduce the cognitive load and to allow people to actually attend to the information that you give it. So on the back of that, I wonder if you could tell us, Kendall, a little bit like what, what, what do you actually show on your visuals to complement that idea as well? See, we've talked just briefly there about not reading off slides. And we also know that there's no point just saying what's on the slide. Um, that goes very much in the face of, of cognitive load theory. So he needs to complement what it is that you're presenting. What, what paths do you go down for that, Kendall? What have you found to be successful? So you're talking about the visual display? Yeah, so as you're presenting, what, what, what actually is on your slides? So in general, what's on my slides are what you would probably call instructions. So things like, uh, uh, here's the prompt, spend two minutes talking to your neighbor, five minutes uh, talking as a small group, come up with three ideas, post them on a chart. Instructions go up there. <clears throat> contents with them. And the reason I do that is uh, because <laughs> I'm a teacher, not a manager. So I'm going to make the slide manage you, not me. I want to engage with you around the content. When I walk up to a table, whether it's a table of children or a table of adults, I don't want to have them say, what do we do next? I want them to ask me a question about content. So if the PowerPoint deck has the instructions of what to do. And I walk up to a table and they say, what do we do next? I just look at the slide. <laughs> and then they look at it and go, oh, okay. And management will not come out of my mouth. Instructions don't come out of my mouth. Uh, content does. So I try to live by that. Um, if there is content on a slide, which does sometimes happen. I might have, you know, sometimes if, if the reading's not available, I might have a slide with two or three sentences on it. 
in which case what I was do is I will say on the next slide, there'll be a couple of sentences. I'm gonna pause as you read that slide and ask you a question. Here's the slide and it comes on. And then I don't say anything once the slide's up till they're finished reading it. So it's less, it's less content on slides and more about yeah. the interaction of, yeah. of you providing that. Yeah, they have, have, they, they have to have the content, right? They have to have something at their tables, right? Yeah. So oftentimes they'll they'll have the book or they'll have a few other things. So they've, they've got the content there. Yeah. And then as you know, having seen me, I'm just modeling the content. You know, I'm modeling the gestures, the voice, the use of location, visual paragraph, third point, you know, everything else that's there. And yes. It's very much you bringing that content to life, isn't it? How much, um, how much time do you spend considering the questions that you ask Kendall? Because they're obviously key in, in yeah. trying to pull out the talking points. Well, what, what top tips do you have for us with, with the questions that you consider and how you deliver those? Yeah. Uh, part, of, part of the work of, of doing the setup, uh, you know, going back to even like Wiggins and McTie with the understanding by design work, you know, you have your essential knowledge, your core knowledge, your good, nice, no knowledge. And then you always have to have the questions that are there. And for me, working with people and developing questions, I'll just briefly say that um, I think it's important for questions to be plural, uh, tentative, or what you might call ambiguous in language. And when possible, without a super high frequency, positive presuppositions. So throw out the word is, and use are or some uh, and uh, throw out the word should and say might. <laughs> what might be some? I think it's important with adult groups. Here we are back in the classroom again. So we have the classroom and we have adult groups. <clears throat> As teachers, <clears throat> uh, I know that sometimes teachers will ask questions in the classroom. And the way the group classroom culture is, is that um, sometimes students are okay answering a question wrong. Uh, I'm not gonna go down that path philosophically. I think there's ways of getting around that. But with adults, uh, adults don't like to be wrong in front of their peers. Yeah. So to ask direct questions, uh, what, is, uh, what is the definition of inquiry, let's say? Uh, that can be wrong in your response. But if you were to say, what might be some elements of inquiry for you? You actually can't be wrong. You said, what might be, which is a degree of uncertainty. And then I said, some. Yeah. Might be one, might be two, might be five. Uh, and then I said for you at the end. So forming questions that allows adults, uh, again, to be somewhat ignorant of a topic, to reveal what they do not know and to reveal what they do know in a safe environment without judgment comes in the structure of those questions linguistically. 
and that's that's intentional on your part there's a there's an intention with the language you've used that has created an opportunity for a teacher in this context to take a risk in a safe space and this links back a lot to what we were talking about Alan with um, Helen Street just recently doesn't it about creating an opportunity for for people to take risks in a safe space without the fear of of um of of failing and then that failure being judged and if we're going to be in a position where we're telling children it's all right to make mistakes we need to create that for adults as well absolutely you know uh <laughs> yeah it makes me think around the idea that uh uh schools are uh wonderful environments of chaos and unpredictability and <laughs> it's yeah. sort of the life of the classroom right and um and we have issues in our schools that sometimes are a week or two old sometimes we have issues that are uh, a whole semester old and sometimes we have issues that are older than a year that have been around right we're always working towards it so we we already don't know because if we did we wouldn't have those issues so creating that safe environment for us as you said to explore to experiment to be creative and innovative is so essential. And how much, of it, how much of it is that as being vulnerable enough to say for every school and every context, every group of people in, in, in any organization, the way forward may look very different. As you've quite rightly said, if there was a blueprint for a school that works for everyone, every school would follow it and it'd be simple. Yeah. But there isn't, which tells you that actually it's context driven and it, it also probably doesn't exist. So how do you how do you create that atmosphere and you present it? Is this about your third points, your easels, you're talking to your neighbor, your partners, your pairs? Is this trying to create this idea of working through the problem together, trying to find an answer together? Uh, certainly trying to find possible answers for it. I agree with you. There aren't, there probably aren't specific answers. Mm. I mean, think about it. We've been teaching for what, 2,500 years, maybe 3,000 <laughs> years. Uh, if we had a formula, we'd have it by now. Uh, so, so there's something else out there. So, you know, this moves all over into the work of, of Ron Heifetz and Marty Linsky and the idea of, of adaptivity, the idea of adaptive leadership, the idea that, that we navigate the swirling waters and we, we build community in uncertainty and we live in ambiguity. You know, it's, it's just what we end up doing. That's, that's, I, I love the work. It's wonderful stuff to do. And that's why I think the communicative intelligence is so important because we need strong relationships with each other to endure what is so unpredictable in the work. And we can't yeah. do it alone. Nobody has shoulders broad enough. So the strength of the community in the school, the adult community, I'll say initially that the strength of that community is huge. Yeah. So the, the right answer doesn't matter as much as people working together towards it. I think so. Yeah, because there's, there's, there's not, a, there aren't right, there's yeah. a right answer. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go back to a situation. I'm just recalling something. It's triggered something in me, this conversation yeah. where, I remember back in a in a previous school where I've worked, the, the the staff, the intention of the staff leading the collaborative meeting was to look at cold calling and questioning techniques. 
Okay. And I distinctly remember it now because it had a, an emotional response in me. They were literally gave a question, a very closed question, and then went round just bosh, 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 asking people for the answer, which there was a correct answer. And all I could think about was shriveling up oh, as yeah. small as I possibly could to not get asked. Oh. I was like so relieved when I didn't. And I was thinking like, you're, it just completely resonates what you just said. That if that have been put into a collaborative task you where you could maybe try and work out the answer as a group, it would have took away maybe that personal humiliation and shame that you might have felt if you got that, that question wrong. Does that make sense? Kendall, it's, it's the feelings that that can have when you don't get it right are really have negative effects on people's well-being. Well, the the so the little bit of science behind it is spot on, right? You felt like you felt in fear, you felt yeah. threatened, and you know the past couple of decades with all the work on the brain, you know we all know we have the neurological highway of fight or flight. You know we got all that. Uh, but sure enough, in studies of what you just said, when questions are asked in that way, with that environment around it, the neurological highway of fight or flight, well, it doesn't exactly light up, but it comes pretty close. <laughs> and, uh, and that's true with adults. So the question did it. Yeah. Nothing else. The question. And so that's why that plural, ambiguous, and positive presuppositions are so important for that safety. And then, of course, you know, pairs, trios, quads, whatever it is that's safe enough so I could turn to you and say, geez, Alan, I don't know. I don't understand this, yeah. right? Which You're so right. And enough to do. Th that links in really nicely, Kendall, with I know you've done a lot of work with the police, yeah. uh, particularly in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You turn up to a situation, and these you can't plan for a lot of these situations. You can do a, anything could happen, couldn't it? So how is important the language in that? And we can equate this to teaching. There's conflict situations. There's difficult conversations. That first contact, how important is body language and the language that you use in that initial contact? I know you've backseated so much with police officers. Yeah. Um, so there's two areas, two major areas I've worked with law enforcement, and, and one of them is what you've just said. I've done a little bit of work on the idea of building rapport with what you call a citizen contact. And then uh, my other work is in collaboration and leadership uh, at the senior level, from police chief down to lieutenant, captain, and, uh, and sergeant. And so with, uh, with a frontline contact, the officer contact, uh, what we have done with officers, and there's some interesting research outside what I've done, but teaching, uh, teaching uh, how to paraphrase, uh, teaching how to use what's called uh, non-judgmental language, sort of neutral language when you're talking, and uh, around the idea that, uh, that that person feels heard and understood and was treated fairly, uh, then those elements contribute to that a positive relationship between a citizen and an officer. So a little bit of what we've talked about, sometimes the open-ended question. Uh, and I have to say, in case an officer is watching, that's not during investigative work. That's a little <laughs> different where you're collecting evidence. But this is around the initial contact where you want to uh, build rapport and a sense of trust uh, that the citizen has for you. 
And so it's that paraphrasing, open-ended uh, uh, questioning, uh, and then and then acknowledging acknowledging what they said. Uh, I have a story if you'd like about it. Love it, yeah, love stories. It's pretty good. So there was a sergeant that had uh, been in one of our sessions, and unknown to us, he had an encounter on the street. And then we had a session uh, sometime later and he shared the story with us. So there's an officer already in contact with uh, a citizen and the sergeant then shows up, it's what called backup. And the short essence of the story is this young woman had opened her home to her sister who was having a difficult time. And uh, the relationship had gone on a little bit too long for the young lady. And, and, and so they were having a, a conflict and she wanted her sister out of the house. And uh, so it, it's, it's pretty emotional. And this woman is uh, telling the officer, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, my sister, I, I love her, but she's got to get out of the house and she's raising her voice and she's yelling. And so this front contact officer doing the duty necessary is gathering information informing her that she can't evict. Uh, he even told her, he goes, you cannot evict. This is how eviction works. But the woman was breathing high, was emotionally distraught. And so when we're breathing high and when we're emotional, there's not enough, there's not enough blood in the brain to run thinking. And there's not enough blood in the brain to run language. So any information the officer has for her, she's not going to hear it. So the sergeant standing there, it's evident that this conversation's going nowhere. And he told the story, he goes, so I thought about your class and I thought, okay, I'm going to step in. So he steps in for a moment and he looks at the woman and he says, it's got to be really tough to have someone you love, have all this happen in this situation for you. And you just don't know what to do. And the woman looked at him and she goes, I won't say exactly what she said because <laughs> she cussed, but she goes, you are effing right, man. <laughs> and she completely calmed down. And then they were able to work something out. But that idea of how do you calm someone down, which, you know, in policing, people don't call you on their best day of their life. <laughs> they're calling you because they're having the worst day of their life. So yeah. there's a lot of things going on. So how do you turn the emotion down? Because you can't tell someone to calm down. So you have to do it another way. So that paraphrasing, deep breathing, uh, the way he mastered the gesture and the eye contact for her was just, it was just perfect. And she, and she did immediately uh, calm down and they had a successful, uh, a successful outcome to the situation they showed up to. Amazing. It's really cool that that sort of, those skills that you, you develop in and that you're teaching are so applicable to a, a real life situation as well, you know, away from the, the stage and the, the lights, if you like. Absolutely. Um, Kendall, we're going to start to wind down now and ask you a few sort of quick fire questions to finish. So I'll hand over to Alan for his, uh, his first one yeah i was just thinking there those those situations in school where a child takes a toy away from other and they go from naught to a hundred straight away 
yeah, and, and you can't you can't reason no reasoning, it just needs time. And I understand why you're upset yeah. and then come back and revisit. So cool that stuff that the police are doing, then it's just links across, it's brilliant. So let's have a bit of fun then with our last sort of few minutes. You've obviously watched a hell of a lot of leaders present across the world. <laughs> yeah. uh, even ones that are ones that are dead, ones that are alive. Choose choose three leaders you'd love to go and have a, an evening meal with and, and tell us why. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, well, to stick to the communication part, uh, I think there's a there's a few there's a few people. Um, at least in my lifetime, I know that uh, someone who has just had an amazing ability to to just fill the room was Bill Clinton. And uh, that's somebody that would be interesting just to engage with him and, and watch him do that, I think, would be just extremely interesting to do. Okay. Uh, from, a, from a deep, from the idea of of adaptability, I got to say Abraham Lincoln, uh, running a country during a civil war had to be just unbelievable. Uh, and uh, for me in my role of, of working in, in the leadership areas, I think would just be fascinating. I had the wonderful opportunity to meet the president of Greece. Uh, he wasn't president when I talked with him, he was the president of Greece when they had their economic downfall. Uh, a decade or so ago, and uh, and he was using adaptive leadership in that. He was incredible to uh, to talk with, uh, just fabulous. Uh, and just because uh, just because I'm working with a friend in Australia, one of the prime ministers, and I forgot her name, but one of the prime ministers of Australia about uh, uh, maybe five years ago, a woman. Uh, was just wonderful uh, to watch talk. And uh, I, would, I would have liked to have sat and talked with her about one particular conversation in parliament that she had. <laughs> that would have been interesting. I'm so sorry, I forgot her name. <laughs> on, the, on the subject of uh, presenting, Ken, obviously is a very inspiring. Julie Gillard, isn't it? I think that's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As a, a very inspiring presenter yourself, do you have um, any recommendations for our viewers of people that they should watch present um, that you know do it with a plum? Yeah, almost anyone, good and bad, because <laughs> you can learn from them. Seriously, uh, I mean, you know, you can go back in time and just Steve Jobs' iconic talk on the release of the iPhone. Yeah, brilliant. It's just a, a brilliant choreography on the stage of what he did. Uh, and you can watch that over and over again. There are tons of skills and strategies that he used that were incredibly powerful for that. Uh, I think watching any politician speak gives you lots of things to look at on how they deliver their message, how people receive the message. And there's just an incredible variety of it. And you just take the past three presidents of the United States. They all had very different ways of speaking. And you can, you can watch them. And if I may, so people don't get stuck in politics, watch them without sound. Uh, that would be Because then you see all the moves. You just watch them without sound. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's fantastic. Just fantastic. And you may have uh, changed the way I watch everyone from now on in. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Um, Kendall, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to, to listen to you, your views and your opinions and some of those top tips you've given us. Thanks for your energy and your time and your enthusiasm. Um, I wonder if you could share with our listeners um, where they could read a little bit more about you and the work that you're doing at the moment. Uh, well, absolutely. You can always Google and just Google my name and the books are on Amazon and my website is sierra-training.com and uh, it's, you'll find out stuff there. And there, there's even some videos on YouTube. I don't know how some of them got there, but if you go to YouTube, you'll see some videos too that are up there. So yeah, <laughs> it's easy enough to find. Perfect. Kendall, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, thanks, Take care. Kendall. See you. Thank you for listening to Sensemakers, brought to you by the Infinite Learners Podcast and backed by Tsunami, the number one ego kit provider for school worldwide. You can learn more about Tsunami by, by visiting tsunami-sport.com. And if you want to hear more from the Infinite Learners, you can find us on your favourite podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you.